Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty, live from the Morton studio. Today in the show, we're going to be talking a little about nutrient stratification. If you've got any questions for us, just give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD. That's 844-442-4743. Or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We are going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag just a little bit later here in the show. But before we do that and before we start taking callers and everything, I just wanted to talk to you for a couple minutes about nutrient stratification. So what we mean by that is there are a lot of what we would call immobile nutrients in the soil. Now, they're not completely immobile, but for our purposes on the farm, for the most part, they are. And I'll, I'll just give you the example of phosphorus. Okay, phosphorus is probably the most immobile nutrient that we need to fertilize for almost every year. And by that, I just simply mean where you place it in the soil, it's not moving. Now, you take the other extreme, nitrate, that is leachable. It will move in the soil. So as you get moisture, you get rainfall, then the nitrate will move down. Now, nitrate could also move back up through capillary action, but the point is nitrate is what we would consider a mobile nutrient in the soil. Other mobile nutrients would include sulfate, boron, chloride. There are a few like that. So the immobile nutrients and where we have this nutrient stratification issue, that's phosphorus number one. Okay, like by far and away, that, that's the one we get worried about. Then we also want you to consider zinc, copper, and at least where we farm. We consider potassium pretty immobile because we have heavy soils, our ground's frozen five months out of the year, we get very little rainfall, and because of all that, where we place potassium pretty well stays there. Now, for you on your farm, if you have year-round growth uh, out of plants and, I mean, the year-round ability for the nutrients to move in your soil. Things might look a little different with potassium, especially if you have light soil and lots of water and or irrigation, then I wouldn't necessarily put potassium in that group. But for our discussion today, we are going to consider potassium at least somewhat immobile. Okay, so anyway, here's where our concern comes. The standard method for applying fertilizer for most farms around the world for a long time has been to do what we call broadcast, where you just throw it out over the top of the soil. And when you do that with phosphorus, even I don't care if you get 50 inches of rain, how deep is it going in the soil? Um, It's barely getting into the ground. Because of reduced tillage... Now, there are lots of benefits to reduced tillage. Don't get me wrong. No-till's great. Strip-till's great. I mean, there are lots of benefits to uh, just cutting back on tillage, all right? But one of the disadvantages is if you don't till, then how are you going to move phosphorus if it's in the wrong place? And by the wrong place, I mean within that top inch of soil. Here's why we don't like that. Two things. Number one, when you think about the roots of the plant, that's what's going to bring in phosphorus and other soil nutrients, right? Well, most of the roots are you're going to find are typically the biggest zone for roots is usually like around four to nine inches deep in the soil with most crops. Now, certainly there are some that are deeper and some more shallow, but the point is there aren't a lot of crops that have a huge percentage of their root mass in the top one inch of soil. 
And by the way, if they do, you probably have a major compaction problem and you get a lot more troubles than nutrient stratification, okay? But where I'm going with this is if you think about, let's say you even have a couple of dry weeks. What dries out first? It's that top inch of soil, top two inches, top three inches. Okay, they dry out. And in a lot of soils, now certainly not all, but in a lot of soils, we have moisture for a long time especially when you get down 6 inches, 12 inches, 18 inches deep. So if you want to make your crop a lot more drought tolerant, you want to some degree drought proof your crop, you put that phosphorus down where the roots are at and where the moisture is at, and then you've got a lot better shot for high yield. You also have a lot better shot to actually use the phosphorus you're applying. How often do you hear, whether it's university people, agronomists, soils people, they'll talk about, well, most of the phosphorus you apply doesn't get used in the short term. Why is that? It's because phosphorus doesn't move in soil. So if you place it where the roots are going to run into it, then you get a lot better shot for uptake in the short term. So that's the first thing. The second reason why you don't want phosphorus in the top inch of soil has to do with water contamination. Now, I'm not talking about groundwater. That's an issue that we could potentially have with nitrate. You're not going to have that with phosphorus unless you put on 100 times too much. And we have seen that in some cases. But typically, phosphorus is, is not going to leach. Okay, It's just not. Where, you, where we worry about phosphorus moving into water is with soil erosion. Because you think about it, that phosphorus is trapped wherever you placed it. And if you place it in the top inch and you lose that top inch to soil erosion, well, goodbye to your dirt, goodbye to your organic matter, and goodbye to your phosphorus that's in that soil. Phosphorus is actually the number one water quality issue we have in North America today. It's number one. Nitrate is not number one. Phosphorus is. The biggest problem with phosphorus is algae blooms. Phosphorus is the limiting factor for algae growth in most waters. I'm talking lakes, rivers, and streams. So even think about Lake Erie and what was the main reason why they started having those algae blooms? It was from cities dumping sewage and a whole bunch of other things and runoff uh, that contain lots of phosphorus. And sure, was there some that came from the farm? Sure. But the majority was not from the farm. The majority was from cities. I love how farmers always get the blame for things, but it's usually cities causing our, our issues in terms of environmental problems. But anyway, there is a big reason why you want to make sure you're placing your phosphorus down in the ground, or a couple big reasons there, why you want to make sure your phosphorus is down in the ground, and also think about those other non-mobile nutrients in soil, copper, zinc, and to some degree potassium and a few others. So we're going to talk about this nutrient stratification issue, how it may be affecting things on your farm, and how you can fix it on today's show. Stay tuned. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. When it comes to trusted herbicide formulations, you know New Farm, and you certainly know New Farm exclusive Weedmaster. For decades, Weedmaster has been the go-to herbicide for consistent burndown weed control in a huge variety of crops, and in range and pasture management too. Don't let yield-robbing weeds stand in the way of your progress or profits. New Farm and Weedmaster herbicide here to help. Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise 
to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. You deserve to have a building that will last for generations. With more than 110 years of experience and thousands of satisfied customers, Morton Buildings is the industry leader you can trust. Unlike other construction companies, you work with Morton Buildings craftsmen. From conception to completion, there's no better time to buy. Lock in your new building for 2020 today. Contact your local Morton sales office or visit mortonbuildings.com. A lot goes into keeping a precision operation moving. The inputs you choose have to deliver results. New Delaro Complete Fungicide from Bayer offers unmatched consistency and the most complete disease control available. Your corn and soybeans are protected and yields higher, even in unpredictable conditions. With Delaro Complete, you get results you can count on to help keep your precision operation running smoothly. Always read and follow label instructions. To learn more, visit delarocomplete.us today. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Live from the Morton studio, I'm Brian Hefty. We're talking about nutrient stratification. And what we mean by that is when you have immobile nutrients in soil, uh, they're basically stuck at certain levels in your soil wherever you happen to place them, whether you place them with broadcast fertilizer, with strip till, with coulters, uh, with the planter, however you place them, they just don't move very well in soil. So our first guest on the show today is Ray Weil. He is with the University of Maryland. And for Ray, his textbook, The Nature and Properties of Soil, is the most widely used soils textbook in the United States and around the world. And his methods for soil microbial biomass and active carbon were adopted by the USDA and NRCS. We're very pleased to be joined by Ray. Ray, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing all right. Spring's right around the corner, so I'm feeling good. <laughs> yep, that's for sure. All right, so our topic today is nutrient stratification. And being from Maryland, um, you know, this this looks a little different than somebody from like me from South Dakota because we have a lot different soils and different weather and everything else. But can you talk to us about the biggest things that you usually discuss with people when it comes to nutrient stratification in soils? Sure, and it's interesting, Brian, that you mentioned the difference between Maryland and, say, South Dakota or someplace out in the Midwest, because our soils naturally were stratified. You know, before anybody cleared the land, they were forests, and if you go out in the forest, almost all the nutrients are in that top inch or half inch. That's where most of the life, and uh, even for big trees, most of the roots are right there under the decaying leaves. So it's actually very similar to a no-till field. Uh, the no-till no kind of gets back to forest, which is yep. pretty different from the prairie soils, right. where the, the roots are much more distributed and the nutrients are much more distributed down deep. So uh, we do find that, especially for the immobile nutrients like uh, phosphorus mainly, uh, zinc and uh, even potassium, uh, that they tend to stay pretty close to where you put them. And it's not only the farmer that's putting nutrients on, but the plants are also moving the nutrients around, especially when we start getting into cover crops where we're growing plants and then leaving the plants on the, on the field. 
that creates a lot of additional stratification. These cover crops are taking, say, phosphorus or potassium from two, three, four feet deep. In fact, some of our research goes down seven feet deep. And bringing all that to the surface, and then the plant dies, or in the case of potassium, the nutrients just leach out, just wash out with the rain, and they get deposited on the soil surface. So that's creating a kind of surface band. Uh, that's not necessarily a problem if you're in a no-till system under a mulch. Roots can grow under there, like in the forest that I that I mentioned. Mm -hmm. And it's actually a big advantage for a plant to have the, the nutrients concentrated in one spot rather than spread out. Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, Ray. Our concern gets to be when we're dry land farming and our top inch or two dries out, and that's where a lot of our nutrients are at, then how do we handle things? Right. Uh, so, yeah, we do dry land farming here, and it does get pretty dry sometimes. We'll go, <laughs> yep. You know, that uh, now, no-till modifies that a little bit if you've got good residues from cover crops and from, from crops. So uh, if you don't see the soil, it's not drying out nearly as much as in a till situation. Uh, and the other thing about uh, in the no-till situation, you have a lot of fungal growth and uh, the, the fungi can actually move some of these nutrients around. So plant roots that have mycorrhizae on them uh, will be able to get those nutrients out of the, even a very uh, dry soil. So we don't usually find much problem having the nutrients near the surface, especially if they're under a mulch. I think the biggest problem is probably that what happens when you have runoff. Yep. You know, when the snow melts or it rains hard, uh, those nutrients on the surface, and here we're mostly concerned about the phosphorus, uh, can become dissolved and, uh, you know, wash into the waterways and cause problems in the Great Lakes and, and, the, and the rivers and local water. So that that is an issue that we need to think about. Okay, so when you talk to farmers and agronomists about these nutrient stratification issues, what do you usually suggest to counteract all the things that you just mentioned that, hey, these nutrients a lot of times will end up in the top inch or two? I, I mean, for somebody who is worried about that runoff and they are worried about contamination, I mean, let's face it, you're in the Delmarva region where that's all it seems like I hear about is potential water contamination. How do you manage through that so you don't have a big problem? Well, I'm actually studying that right now. I've got a grant from our soybean growers uh, to, to work on that. Uh, there's not a lot of uh, good information on it. It's pretty contradictory. Uh, some of the work out of Canada shows that snow melts can carry a lot of nutrients off the surface if, if they're uh, stratified like that. That's pretty tough to, to deal with. Um, I hate to recommend using tillage to work the nutrients in, in a no-till <laughs> system because that kind of sets you, sets you back. But if you have a living cover crop, and it doesn't frost kill, that really slows down the uh, the loss of nutrients now, right. or, or the movement of water. But we are not finding increased uh, phosphorus uh, in, in our work so far. When we do get runoff, uh, the, the cover crops don't seem to be affecting the, the nutrient load in that runoff very much. Yeah, anything that can slow down the speed of the runoff, that really, really helps. And, you know, just leaving some residue out there, also a big deal to help hold that soil in place. So, yeah, I, I, I also am not super concerned about that. But nevertheless, uh, there, there are lots of questions about that and we wonder about that. I will just say, 
I, I personally, I think one of the biggest issues with this whole nutrient stratification thing is a lot of people aren't even aware that most of the nutrients are in the top inch or two because they'll run zero to six inch soil tests. We've started That's going right. to, you know, one inch tests or three inch tests or something just to, at least in a few spots, identify, mm-hmm. hey, do we have a problem or do we not? So I'm going to guess almost everybody you talk with, they're just pulling zero to six inch samples, correct? Nobody that I know of is doing much for I- anything else to, to find out, do I actually actually have a stratification problem or do I not? Well, here in Maryland, uh, where no-till is the, is, is the conventional, it's a no-till yep. conventional till yep. here. Most yep. of our farmers do some version of no-till. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not all, you know, long-term pure no-till, but, but just about everybody's using a no-till. Most, most of us do take a, a, a two-depth sample. So we'll take a six or seven-inch sample and, and analyze the top two inches separately. Oh, good. For that purpose, and also, do you have credit for those nutrients? So you, you can have, uh, you know, very high levels of phosphorus in the top inch and sort of moderate to low levels deeper down. It averages out the medium and you think you need more phosphorus. And so you get a truck out there and you spread another 100 pounds of phosphorus across the surface. Uh, I, before I did that, uh, I would <laughs> recommend you put a couple of test plots out in, in your field where you just skip the phosphorus and see whether you're taking a yield head. Yeah. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is that that uh, you, we know that banding is much better than broadcast, that when you band your fertilizer, it's much more available because it's highly concentrated. And plants are adapted. We used to think you had to mix everything nice and even so it would be all over the root system, but that's not the environment that plants live in. They live in an environment where, you know, some animal poops over here and another animal dies over there, and those become hot spots of nutrients. Right. And plants are adapted at mining those hot spots and growing all their roots in those few spots, even if the rest of the soil is low. And the stratification of the surface soil is just like a, a vertical band instead of a horizontal band. And that may be more available than you think. So I, I think uh, it, the stratification may enable us to reduce uh, the amount of phosphorus you put on, and that helps us fight this runoff as well. So before I put phosphorus out in a field that was testing medium to high, I would put some test strips out to see whether I really need it. Yeah. Not cheap either. Yep, I, I agree. We talk about this all the time that, I, I mean, everybody seems to, it feels like to us, be focused on N, P, and K, and that's great. They're the primary nutrients, but it could be zinc that's limiting your yield or something else. So rather than applying more phosphorus without addressing everything else, that could be problematic. Well, again, we've been talking with Ray Weil here with uh, University of Maryland. Hey, Ray, this is great stuff. Thanks a lot for the time. Uh, hopefully we can have you on again on the show sometime. Sure enough. Good to talk to you. Take care. You bet. Thanks. All right. So once again, we are talking about nutrient stratification here. And Ray brought up a good point that a lot of times, just naturally in soils, there are hot spots out there. And the interesting thing is roots, when they find a hot spot, they will proliferate there. You'll see a whole bunch of roots right in that area because the plant recognizes, ooh, this is a good area. It'll put more roots out in that zone. So it is kind of interesting. Well, we'll talk more about nutrient stratification right after this on Ag PhD Radio. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. 
Always read and follow label instructions. It's about time. Time for unprecedented season-long foliar disease protection. Formulated for a convenient at-plant application, new first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway brand fungicides deliver complete inside-out protection from day one. From root to tassel, stalk to leaf. From planting through harvest. The active ingredient, Flutriophol, moves from the soil through your plants as your corn grows. Change the way you approach foliar disease protection from the start with first-of-their-kind Inferro Zyway 3D and Zyway LFR fungicides, available only from FMC. Zyway brand fungicides qualify for the exclusive agronomic and economic incentives of the FMC Freedom Pass program. Visit your FMC retailer or zyway.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. You're all set with the 4x4 turbo diesel truck. How about some options? Spray and bed liner? Absolutely. Tailgate step and nerf bars? Gotta have them. Tie down hooks and stainless steel toolbox? You know it. Tinted windows? Of course. Options are good. That's as true in the field as it is with your pickup. In addition to taking care of tough weeds, new Open Sky Herbicide gives you more rotational choices than ever before and an easy-to-handle formulation. <laughs> Gooseneck toe package? Yep. Discover more Open Sky details at openskyherbicide.com. A history of success means proven performance. But let's call performance what it is. Profitability. And boosting yours, no matter what the season brings, is the goal of DeKalb brand corn. Backed by exclusive genetics, whole farm solutions, and unmatched dealer support. Let nothing shake your perseverance. Ask your dealer how DeKalb brand corn can help you realize a future of performance. Always read and follow IRM where applicable. Grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe this spring with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. Thanks for listening today to Ag PhD Radio. I'm Brian Hefty, live from the Morton studio. If you've got any questions for us, you can certainly give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD, or you can send us an email, radio at agphd.com. We're talking nutrient stratification today, and next on the show, we've got Paul Yasa. He is an extension engineer with University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Paul, how are you today? Oh, doing good, Brian, and thanks for having me on. You bet. Yeah, we appreciate you joining us. I was just looking at these long-term tillage studies regarding stratification, uh, and this is some information clear back to the years 2000 and 2004. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and kind of what you've learned in terms of stratification and regarding tillage? Well, stratification is or can be a problem, and the stratification is simply where we have more nutrients on top than we have deeper in the root zone. And if we look at what Mother Nature has done, Mother Nature never tilled. Mother Nature never mixed nutrients. Mother Nature put the decaying residues on top. And if you go out into a native pasture or a forest land and measure it, you're going to find stratification. But our ancestors started doing tillage and planting, and they saw the moldboard plow inverting the soil and mixing. They thought we we're actually mixing things in deeper. 
Well, as it turns out, uh, it's not as quite as deep as some people think when it comes to what the effects of tillage are on surface applied things. Yeah, but I will say this. When I have studied back to even Herman Warsaw in the 1970s, he was the first guy consistently raising 300 bushel corn. And by the way, you think about that, it's 50 years ago, it's crazy. And, and uh, anyway, Francis Childs in Iowa was raising 400 bushel corn. And my point with both of those guys, uh, Childs did his in the 80s and 90s. But anyway, we have their soil test results. And down deeper in the soil, they had a lot of nutrients there. Now, granted, it was high near the top, but they had worked over time to build nutrients a little bit deeper. And everybody always wants to throw out, and it was one of the first things that you did there, uh, you know, Mother Nature had stratification out there. You know, my response is always, I'm thinking about Mother Nature. We're trying to make things better. Mother Nature by itself never raised 300 bushel corn, and Mother Nature uh, just needs a little bit of boost from time to time. So we're wondering how we can assist that, and maybe stratification isn't that big a deal, but we're always questioning that, and that's why we're talking about this on the show today. So we wanted to get your opinion on it. How big a deal is this to a farmer, and what do you suggest when a farmer starts identifying, well, just like you did here, uh uh-oh, I got a lot of my nutrients in the top two inches, and I'm worried about when I dry out, well, now what? Well, that's a key word there you had is dry out. Uh, a lot of the early work done on stratification was in tilled soils with that surface layer without residue to protect it. Uh, you stirred the soil, you dried it out, and uh, if you had the nutrients there but you had no moisture there, the roots would not find it because the roots don't grow in dry soil. Right. And so that's what happens is uh, we're looking at uh, the longer uh, a soil is getting good structure and being protected by residue and has moisture near the surface, stratification may not be a problem. But I agree with you, we want to build for the long term. We want to recover. We want to regenerate uh, whatever term people are using nowadays. (laughs) And it's because we have mined the soil. We have hauled away those nutrients. And that's one thing I did in my study. Rather than put on, you know, 40 pounds a year or something like that, I put on 100 pounds in one shot of uh, phosphorus. And that higher concentration than is mobile in soil water solution can move downward through the macropores. And that's what a lot of people are doing to build long-term to get it down deeper is you put on a bigger charge so it does move down until it bonds with soil. Now, if I would have put a light layer out every year, it would have bonded the soil and not moved downward. And that's where, again, we want good soil structure, good macropores, get uh, some movement downward. And that's what uh, we tend to look at as we're starting to look at these reduced till systems or strip till or something like this is get that downward. All right, Paul, and I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, but based on what you said there, for let's say it's a no-till person who who doesn't have any good way to get fertilizer down below two inches deep, and they just they, they would like to put their phosphorus on top, would they then be ahead to, let's say, put some bands of phosphorus? So then it'd be not only concentrated, but let's say they did this at a high dose, you know, let's call it every 30 inches or something on the soil surface, would they have a much better chance then of having that move down into the soil? That they would. Uh, the, the higher concentration, like I say, it moves until it bonds with soil enough such that it quits moving. And uh, I always ask people who ask me about how deep do you incorporate your fertilizer, I ask them how deep, they, how deep do they incorporate it on their pasture, rangeland, alfalfa, or even their <laughs> lawn. Well, on each one of those, we have roots near the soil surface because we've got near-complete soil coverage with something growing there. Yeah. And again, as we start looking at no-till with residue or with cover crops or with something to keep the sun and wind off the soil surface, I'm not that concerned. But you're right, to get it to move downward, a building program costs us a little more than the maintenance program. It's because we do need that extra moving downward. 
Yeah. Uh, now, you mentioned cover crops, and this is one of the things when I, I've talked to a lot of no-till people over the years who say, oh, stratification is not a big deal. We'll plant cover crops, and that'll move the nutrients around in the soil. I, I, I don't know that I've necessarily found that to be true. What do you think about cover crops and any impact on stratification? Well, when it comes to cover crops, uh, the only nutrient they can actually make for you is nitrogen. Our legumes can do that. When it comes to all of our other nutrients, they're simply rearranging what's in the soil profile. And so if I have a subsoil that's uh, high in uh, calcium, typically, yep. we can see cover crop roots pull that up. The decaying residue on top puts it on top, and it's a biological form of liming the soil by bringing that calcium up. Now, if I don't have a calcareous subsoil or if I don't have high phosphorus levels in my subsoil, when that cover crop brings up whatever is down there and decays on top of the residue, it doesn't add anything. And so I'm sort of like you. The cover crops don't really do much to build soil. They just sort of rearrange what's in the soil itself. You brought up something, though, that I had never thought about before, and I don't know why I haven't, but we have a lot of those soils that you're talking about where the top, let's call it four inches, the pH has gotten down just because of our nitrogen use and, you know, different things over the years. It's weathered soil. But down deep, our soil is loaded with calcium and the pH is just fine and it's near seven. So, and I realize this is a little bit off topic here, but still kind of along the same line. So have you had people do that and plant cover crops and then all of a sudden they're able to raise that, that pH on the, uh, on the top few inches? Oh yes. There's been a lot of people who've done that and uh, sort of done away with liming because they have so much free lime already available down below. The key is there, you're going to use a cover crop that has a little deeper rooting system than your cash crop. So it does get down deeper. And typically we look at the broad leaves with the taproot uh, because they will go down deeper. And one of the actual favorite ones out there is actually a simple buckwheat. And it's simply because buckwheat grows so fast. A uh, buckwheat plant will grow and bloom in 30 days and in 45, 60 days it's made seed. And you get a second generation, you get a third generation depending on where you're at. Uh, you can get a lot of roots bringing stuff up from down below and putting it up on top for you with something like buckwheat. And that's one of the favorites for the cover croppers because it's a readily available cheap seed. And that would do a decent job of moving that calcium around, you're saying? It does, yes. And again, it's the broadleafs that help us out a lot more because those roots do go down deeper than our grass roots, which are more fibrous near the soil surface. What do you think about, the other thing is, oh, oh, I was just going to say, what, what do you think about radishes and turnips? Because those are broadleaves that people are talking about commonly. Are those going to help anywhere near what buckwheat would? They will help. Uh, the disadvantage that uh, radishes and turnips have is they are not mycorrhiza-friendly to help our soil right. bacteria and soil fungi right. stay alive. And they also don't produce a lot of above-ground biomass when it comes to protecting the soil. Yep. Now, granted, buckwheat doesn't make a lot of biomass, but at least it hangs around a little longer than the radishes and turnips. The other thing is the cost of the seed on the radishes and turnips are a little higher than some of our other brassicas. You know, even common rape or a off-cheap brand of canola, something like that, would do actually a better job than the radishes and turnips because they're cheaper and the roots actually will do the same thing as far as cycling that residue. I got about a minute left here, Paul. Anything else you got for guidance for us today when you talk about nutrient stratification? Well, the key is, like you said earlier, to build it down deeper, you have to have it on top to move it down deeper. And Mother Nature will move it if we've got some good infiltration, good soil structure, good wormholes, good root channels, good things like that in the soil profile. So I don't need to run out and buy a machine that's going to inject things, say, two foot deep. I can just uh, keep a good healthy soil on top and a good structure there to get it down deeper. All right. Well, again, we've been talking with Paul Yassa. He is with University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Paul, that was great stuff. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Sure thing. Nice to be on.
All right, so our topic today is nutrient stratification, and we hope you've enjoyed that. We are going to get to the Ag PhD mailbag here in just a minute. Get it, we are getting a lot of questions in about that, especially considering our weather conditions have changed a lot. 2018, 2019, really wet through much of the Midwest, now dry, and we're getting some questions about carryover. So I want to get that addressed when we come back right away again you're listening to ag phd radio and if you've got any questions for us just email them radio at agphd.com or give us a call here 844-44-AG-PHD you can count on agro liquid for precision crop nutrition when you don't get all your potash down in the fall when weather or market prices change your management strategy or when you want to balance your fertilizer program with micronutrients. AgroLiquid is ready with the products and application flexibility you want for in-season crop nutrition and the research-proven results you need. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Revitech fungicide from BASF has been specifically developed for the selective soybean grower who doesn't compromise. If you think good is good enough, if you're okay with just achieving rather than overachieving, if average is your goal, this is not the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide, brand new chemistry, three no excuse modes of action, zero modes of compromise. Sounds like the fungicide for you. Revitech fungicide from BASF, that's smart. Always read and follow label directions. Want to cut production costs without losing yield? Brian Ryberg from Buffalo Lake, Minnesota has done just that. Here's his story. We began using a soil warrior in our farm the fall of 2014. We've seen many benefits from better water infiltration, a lot less hours on equipment, fuel, able to reduce our fertilizer side, so it's really simplified our operation. See what makes Soil Warrior different and better at SoilWarrior.com. You're looking for soybeans that give you the yield you want. But when it comes to fighting your toughest weeds, you also need flexibility. Introducing Extend Flex Soybeans. Elite Genetics with triple tolerance to dicamba, glyphosate, and glufosinate. The yield you want, the choice you need. Learn more at extendflexsoy.com. Always read and follow IRM where applicable, grain marketing, and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You need a powerful herbicide to fight the war on weeds. Vellum is Rotam North America's mesotrion herbicide, and it fights against the annual broadleaf weeds attacking your cornfields. Winning this battle means higher yields, lower cost to you, and maximized profitability. For long-lasting residual weed control, check out Evinco, Vilify, and our newest mix, Rixa. For application, flexibility, and season-long control, that's Evinco, Vilify, and Rixa, powered by Bellum. For more information, visit bellumherbicide.com. That's B-E-L-L-U-M herbicide.com. As a little girl, I always wanted to run the combine because it meant I was helping dad. And dad always said, farmers are helpers. I'm teaching that to my daughters, that farmers help our family, our neighbors, and our community. It's what I do at work. I help farmers get the equipment they need. My name is Kim. I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Welcome back to Ag PhD Radio. We've been talking about nutrient stratification. And just to wrap that up, 
I, I will say this. The, the first thing that I would always encourage you to do is just learn more about your soils on your farm. And well, we love zero to six inch soil tests in almost all cases. I would encourage you to at least think about pulling in a couple spots in your farm. Maybe soil tests every one inch or every two inches or even every three inches if you don't want to go to that work. We've done it every one inch going down in soil in long-term no-till. We've done it long-term strip-till. We've done it long-term conventional till. And one of the reasons why Darren and I both really like strip-till, and I'm not saying either no-till or conventional till is bad, but I'm just saying we see this as a potential advantage or as an, adva- an actual advantage for strip-till that we can now place our fertilizer with these immobile nutrients deeper down. For example, I was just talking, and, and this is, uh, I guess, maybe let's step aside from the strip-till conversation for one second. Manure. There are a lot of people that get worried about phosphorus and these environmental issues caused by phosphorus. Well, it's very rare when we have any leaching of phosphorus. You'd have to way overdo it on phosphorus. But what we like seeing with manure is it getting put down deeper in the ground. Because let's face it, a lot of times there's tillage done out there. And if the tillage is very light. We start loading up the top two or three inches of soil. Now we have more potential for runoff and for contamination downstream. We don't want that. Nobody wants that. And by the way, you don't want to lose those valuable nutrients out of your field. But anyway, I come back to deep placement of manure, and then I think about strip-till. Well, with strip-till, what we found, like in the long-term strip-till field where we had done soil tests every one inch going down you could see almost exactly where that fertilizer had been placed over the years so the ground was loaded up in the four inch to about 10 inch range especially six inch to 10 inch range because that's where the fertilizer had been applied and so i realized that plants can move things around in soil and they can deposit stuff back on the soil surface and that's all true but what we found is where we had done, where we had this long-term strip-till field, there was a lot of phosphorus that was down deep in that ground. And we really, really liked that. So it was there, it was available for the crop, yet we didn't have the environmental risk, so it was protected. So it's just something for you to consider. When we talk about no-till, that that's always been one of our biggest concerns with no-till because we farm in a dry part of the world. If we had ample rainfall, then there's a much better chance, anybody that has ample rainfall or irrigation, there's a much better chance that nutrient stratification where all your nutrients are in the top couple inches of soil, there's a better chance that that's not going to hurt you. Okay, But when you start thinking about how do you drought-proof your crop, and by the way, they're predicting that 2021 is going to have below normal moisture. Now, obviously, nobody knows. (laughs) Everybody's taking a guess at that. But almost every forecaster, every meteorologist so far that I've heard has said, hey, there's a better chance than average for drier conditions. And by the way, we're starting the season with no moisture. We, Where our farm is, we're in extreme drought area. So you start thinking about that. It's like, hmm, I could put all my fertilizer on the soil surface, but do I really want to do that? Isn't it better to place it down in the ground a little bit, protect it so we don't have that risk of environmental contamination, and now it's more in the root zone, and there's a better chance for recovery in the short term. It's a little bit different when you own the ground, and you don't mind building that ground up for the long term, but I'll tell you what, we rent some ground. We don't rent a lot anymore, but 
if and we're also lucky because we do a lot of long-term stuff with with our landlords but if we were on short term and I know there are a lot of farmers and I'm sure a lot listening today where you don't know next year in 2022 if you're going to farm that same ground again why would you broadcast fertilizer why would you do you know lay stuff on the soil surface where it might be 5 years before somebody recovers that or even 3 years or even 2 years the point is if you're going to spend money and you have a 1 year lease it's kind of nice to recover that as fast as possible. So that's that's part of the reason we talk so much about banding and so much about just anything. Even two inches deep is better than laying it on the soil surface. So just think about nutrient stratification. And if you don't think you have this issue, I would challenge you at least take a spot or two on your farm and do soil tests, even every couple inches or three inches, whatever, all the way down to a foot and preferably even down to two feet. I'll bet you that on your farm, the at least half of the fertilizer in the top 24 inches is in the top three. Half of the fertilizer in the top 24 is in the top three. So why would you want to continue adding more fertilizer where you're already loaded up? Just something for you to think about today. Right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. It's the mailbag! All right, first question comes from Rick. He says, hi guys, I heard you talk about HPPD carryover on Commodity Classic. Here's my concern last year. I had applied 3.6 pints of Halix GT that didn't kill the water hemp, so we came back and resprayed it June 19th with 1.5 ounces of impact and got very good results. Uh, my plan is to plant E3 soybeans in those fields for 2021. I was told there should not be any carryover issues, but after listening to your presentation, um, I'm concerned and I'm thinking maybe I should be planting LLGT27 soybeans that wouldn't have the carryover problem because they're tolerant to HPPDs. Um, I am in Minnesota and this will be a no-till. Rick, if it was my farm, there's zero chance I would plant E3 soybeans. And I'm dead serious. You put 3.6 ounces or sorry, 3.6 pints of Halix GT out there. That's already, in my opinion, a lot and more HPPD than I would put out in a year. And then you followed up with 1.5 ounces of impact. Now, I don't know if it was actually 1.5 ounces of impact. If so, uh, that is a massive dose. That's a double dose. And even though impact doesn't carry over as much as Callisto, it's still concerning to me that there's going to be some HPPD left, especially when I know your area and I know how much rain you got since that helix, or sorry, since that uh, that respray was done on June 19th. On our farm, since June 19th last year, we've had a grand total of about I think it's about eight inches of precip. That's it. That includes the snow too. So nope. If it was me, I'd go LLGT 27. There are some good varieties of those out there, and I I know there's supply available around too. Okay, next one comes from Cody. Uh, he was commenting on we'd been talking to some high-yield soybean farmers, and he said, remember, yield has no correlation with profit. Cody, I understand that we got to focus on profit, but I hope that if you listen to our television show or radio show or anything we do, we're talking profit all the time. It's all about ROI. It's nice to get high yields, but we got to have a return. But I will say there absolutely is a direct correlation between yield and profit on most farms. Talk to any farm economist and they will share with you the information they have over the last, I don't even know how long, 30, 40 years, something like that. But I've seen all kinds of data showing the higher yielding farmers typically are making more profit. But again, it's not always that. So we've got to always think about profitability. We got to think about ROI. 
All right, next one comes from Matthew. He says, uh, hi, guys, I ordered the Neil Kinsey online webinar, just watched a little bit of it, and it's great. Um, we here, Here's a question, though. We started tiling last fall, and we have some high-sodium, and he says high-sodium slash dead areas that we tiled. Our base saturation calcium in these spots ranges from 27 to 47. Our base saturation magnesium is 34% to 54%. So you can see why it's so tight. Uh, and then sodium is 8 to 12%. So, uh, Matt, first of all, I feel for you when you start talking about sodium, 8 to 12%, that is a lot. Anyway, he says the pH in these areas is 5.8 to 8.4. Where the high sodium is, I'm sure that's where uh, you're, you're getting 8.4 because pH is really driven by sodium and magnesium more so even than calcium. Anyway, he says, with what I heard from Neil, I should be putting on lime to help fix the calcium-based saturation and move some sodium out of the soil, and this should help lower the pH. Should I also be adding any Tiger 90, that'd be elemental sulfur, to help flush out the salts? Well, Matt, look, I'm, I'm thankful that you sent us your information. I'm glad you're tiling, but I'd like to know how much sulfur is already in your ground, and here's why. In a lot of cases where you're so loaded up with, you know, we got all these soil issues and everything and sodium, there might be a lot of sulfur there. If there is, just tiling might fix your problems because that sulfate could combine with sodium and magnesium flush out of the soil and all of a sudden things start getting fixed. If you don't have lots of sulfur, then yes, you could put on some lime, some gypsum, or some Tiger 90. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Pentair Hypro Ultra Low Drift Nozzles are your ideal choice for the Enlist E3 herbicide system. With coverage comparable to flat fans and with 90% less drift, ULD nozzles meet all required standards for Enlist applications and provide optimal performance of contact herbicides. Learn more at pentair.com hypro. Start your crop off right with the Germinator Closing Wheel from Farm Shop MFG. Our spike design excels on variable soils and shatters compaction. Plus, the unique shoulder firmer encases a seed to maximize seed-to-soil contact. Order yours at farmshopmfg.com. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds, even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. It's not about how quickly you come out of the gate with nitrogen fertilizer, but how strong you finish the race. High Striker uses patent-pending chemistry to stabilize your nitrogen in a form that lasts longer in your crop's root zone. Because for high yields, your nitrogen must last longer, so you can finish the season stronger. Visit agrotechusa.com to learn why so many growers are going the distance with High Striker treated nitrogen. Give your corn a strong defense against stress throughout the season with MycoApply Indoprime SC. MycoApply Indoprime SC uses four specially selected species of mycorrhizal fungi to protect your crop against stress. That means more access to water and key micronutrients while building a healthy soil structure for stronger crops for years to come. Stronger corn starts beneath the surface. Learn more about MycoApply Indoprime SC at IndoprimeCorn.com. Always read and follow label instructions. 
It takes a team to beat resistant weeds. Experts agree using multiple herbicides with alternate modes of action increases your chances of beating resistant weeds. Tough 5EC is a selective, contact herbicide for post-emergence control of broadleaf weeds, especially herbicide-resistant strains. Tough 5EC is a perfect teammate, having a synergistic effect with HPBD inhibitors and enhances products in the PS2 group. Make Tough 5EC part of your winning team. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelchamUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. Wherever you go, whatever you're doing, whenever you want. Farm your way with Case IH AFS Connect. Now you can farm, share data, and manage your fleet however, whenever, and wherever you want. Learn more at caseih.com slash farm your way. Thanks for listening to Ag PhD Radio. I am Brian Hefty, live in the Morton studio. If you've got a question for us, just uh, give us a call here, 844-44-AG-PHD, or send us an email, radio at agphd.com. I uh, got one, got an email from Jason up in Alberta, and Jason emails us from time to time, and, and I, I guess he just sent in 2020 crop insurance yield information from Alberta saying that they are in risk area 21. And he also said, I appreciate everything you do. Thanks for Neil Kinsey's presentations. Uh, Very informative. I I often tell people one of the things I love most about getting the opportunity to do our radio show every day and our TV show every week, and we've been doing these things for years and years, it makes me a lot better agronomist because we get questions from all over, we get information from all over, and if there's something we're talking about where somebody has something that uh, that can help us, farmers are great and they send us all kinds of stuff. So Jason, I appreciate the yield information from up in Alberta, interesting to look at, and uh, just uh, helps make me a little bit smarter. All right, we got an email from Chris who said, can lodging be improved on cool season grass with potassium as a potential limiting factor. Chris, the most important thing, I don't care what crop we're talking about or grass or anything, and by the way, I view grass as a crop. The most important thing when it comes to lodging is always potassium. I mean, sure, there are other factors, everything from drainage to compaction, and, you know, so there are a number of things. But in terms of a soil nutrient, potassium is number one by far and away. Now, the other two important nutrients with that are copper and manganese. Copper and manganese, and you don't need a lot of either of those nutrients, but you do need a lot of potassium, especially when you start thinking about grass and if the grass ever leaves the field if you cut that grass. Now, I would also say that one of the challenges with grass is people think nitrogen, 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 which is great. I mean, the nitrogen's important, but the problem is the nitrogen-potassium ratio gets out of whack. So, yes, The potassium absolutely should help. So if you want to, you can send us your soil tests. I don't care if it's a grass crop or anything. We're always looking for a minimum of 4% base saturation potassium and then good high levels in terms of parts per million, usually at least two to 300 parts per million of K. But again, it all depends on the situation. All right, next one here is from Diego, who says, Hi, I am short on zinc and copper, and I wanted to know if I should apply them only with water or if I can tank mix them with other stuff. I'm at 0.8 parts per million in copper and one part per million on zinc. 
By the way, I just finished watching Neil's seminar and I learned a lot. It was like going to the university again. Thanks for bringing him. All right, so Diego, I will say this. If you start mixing zinc and copper with other nutrients, our biggest concern, if it's on the dry end, is what's going to settle out, what's going to rise to the top. So with both zinc and copper, unless that bulk density is exactly the same as the other nutrients you're applying, the other fertilizers you're applying, now we've got a problem. So I will tell you on our farm, we are running these separate. And the, the other reason why we want to do that is because we don't need zinc in all areas. We don't need copper in all areas. And I, I realize you're telling me here your level on copper is 0.8, but I don't know how many acres you farm or anything else. So we really like seeing grid or zone soil testing done and then just put the nutrients where they actually need to go. Now, let's say that you need both zinc and copper on all your acres for sure, and you really want to do that, and you can find a homogeneously uh, a homogeneous prill that will give you both of those nutrients i'm all for using that so and i'll step back here a few years ago when we wanted to go out and put on about i don't remember what it was four or five different micronutrients and sulfur and a couple other things we did find from a company where they had in every prill they had a certain ratio of all these nutrients. So I knew that in every prill I was getting that. Then I'm comfortable with it because it's all the same. But if you're going to take zinc by itself and copper by itself, and let's call it MAP by itself, um, I don't like that. So anyway, just something for you to be thinking about. Um, Can you put copper sulfate in water? Sure you can. If you do that, by the way, make sure you clean that sprayer out every night and you are absolutely diligent. If you forget one night, you are not going to be happy the next morning. But yes, we've sprayed all kinds of copper sulfate on our farm. The nice thing too with that, because the copper is really low. Zinc, if you're only at one part per million, we have a lot of fields. We're trying to get to 10. So then we're going to spread a bunch of zinc sulfate. It's cheaper that way. It's easier. And you know we're spreading a whole bunch. But with copper... It's not a lot. And the concern with dry gets to be how good a job did we spread that copper out in the field. So that's where mixing with water can be nice. And the other thing is you can get copper sulfate, the you know the, the stuff that will mix in water, about as cheap as the dry anyway. So you, you certainly could go that way if you want. All right, next one here is from Leandro who asks, how long does a lab take to process a, a plant tissue test? And also, which method did they use? Uh, look, Leandro, I, I don't know exactly which methods the, the labs are using for plant tissue analysis. And, and I can only imagine that there are different labs running different things. But I will say most of the labs are only going to take two or three days to run the test. The, the time that gets taken is in shipping the sample and then in getting the result back if, if they don't give it to you online. So there are a lot of farmers I know, or at least a few farmers I know, that will literally take the sample out of the field and run it to their tissue test lab, and then they'll get the results back online as quickly as possible so then they can make a fast decision. Because here's the problem. You know, if something goes wrong in your plant and you happen to be there and you, you, you sense it, I mean, with this plant tissue analysis, well... Were you really there day one when the problem started? Probably not. Let's say you were three, four days after the problem really started. Okay, now it takes a couple days to send it to the lab. The lab gets the results. You don't look at your email right away, and all of a sudden it's a week later. Well, really, 
it's probably 10 days or more since the problem started. And you go, oh, I got a problem. Now I got to put on nitrogen or I have to put on this or that. Well, the plant's already been suffering for a while. So the, the shorter you can make that time from when you sample the plant to when you get the results and, and actually do something about it, the better off you are. And this is also why we often tell people, you know, you're probably not going to be able to time it right. So more than anything, it's about correcting your situation for next year. If you continually find hay in your plant tissue, you're having problems with phosphorus, for example. Okay, let's get it addressed for next year so the problem doesn't happen again. All right, next question comes from uh, Ewan who asks, can you utilize liquid manure and trickle it on over the corn stalks and waste instead of artificial nitrogen? Look, you can use manure as your nitrogen source. That's not the problem. My concern gets to be when you say, I don't know exactly what you mean by trickle it on over the corn stalks. If we're talking about living, growing corn plants, that's not a good idea because the salt, the everything in there could potentially burn that crop. So I wouldn't put it on the crop if the crop is growing. Now, if you're saying, corn stalks in the fall, sure, you can do that, but you got to be a little bit careful about what is going to go up in the air. Let me put it to you this way. Our dad had a saying when we were on the farm because we had lots of livestock. I mean, that was my first job on the farm. Started when I was age 10 and I was doing hog chores every morning, every, every night, 365 days out of the year. Yeah, that was fun. Anyway, <laughs> our dad always said, uh, when we'd complain about the smell, he'd go, boys, that's the smell of money. And I always tell people that is absolutely not the truth. When you smell that manure, what are you smelling? Well, in a lot of cases, you're smelling ammonia. And to me, that's the smell of lost money. I want that nitrogen in the ground, not in the air. We get enough nitrogen in the air as it is. Do you know that the majority of the air you breathe is nitrogen? Anyway, I want my nitrogen in the ground. So when you when we talk about putting manure over the top of plants, uh, obviously I don't really want to do that. But over, over corn stalks in the fall, sure, I'm fine with that. But you're going to have to till it in. Or you need to inject it in order to do the best you can to preserve the nitrogen to reduce the smell and to maximize the benefit that you can actually get out of that manure. So anyway, uh, yeah, we are all for looking at other sources of, of nutrients all the time. Manure can be really good. You just have to test it first and put on the right amounts. You know, like anything else, if you use something in moderation, generally speaking, it works out great. Well, before we go, I just want to say thanks to my sister Janelle. She was running the controls for me today. Uh, thanks to our guests and thanks to everybody who wrote in with questions. We really appreciate that. And thanks to you for listening. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.